What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain Dr. Dave Nichols is the co-founder and president of the Hefter Research Institute, which is advancing the field of clinical research for psilocybin more than any other organization in the world. This was one of my favorite podcasts of all time. Dave Nichols is a hero of mine. I've heard him speak at the Psychedelic Science Conference multiple times, and it was truly an honor to sit down with this man. Enjoy. Has there been study on... on uh you know, learning and like language learning and, and psychedelics. Has anyone ever done that? I'm not aware of that. Yeah, because everything just sort of stopped in 1970. Yeah. And can you imagine what the world would have been like if it didn't? You know, like oh, it would be, it would be real different. And, you know, I tell people had LSD never been discovered, we can't even imagine what the world would be like. Think of its influence on art, performing art, music, psychedelics. I mean, I think their world would be a much different looking place. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you, you think of, you know, one single course of action that had such dramatic negative impact, you know, the, the criminalization and, and not only for what it's done to the people, but just the pure research alone, how far that set science oh, yeah. I back. Mean, studying the brain, studying depression, mental illness, yeah. all this stuff is going to yield to this. And it's just started a couple of years ago, basically. Yeah, And when you realize the drug war was started to suppress Democratic voters, you knew that, right? That's the theory that I heard, yeah. John, John Ehrlichman supposedly was quoted as saying, we wanted to suppress the Democratic voters, but we couldn't just stop them from voting. But we knew they were all, all these young people were smoking pot and taking drugs. And so if we criminalized the drugs, we could lock them up and give them records, and then they couldn't vote. I think, well, the drug war started to, for, as voter suppression? Like, that's really awful. That's bad. Yeah, that's bad. And so many, you know, you you talk about even even issues with marijuana and you know there's ties back to uh william randolph hearst owning oh, 19, a bunch yeah. of owning a bunch of paper resources he had and not forced, wanting hemp he was had all this forest for his paper industry and he was afraid that hemp paper would make his forest worthless and of course hemp paper is better than paper made out of wood yeah the u.s constitution is written on hemp paper it's a renewable resource. Farmers right. could grow it. We could make fiber, renewable hemp, and it's a weed. I mean, yeah. I've grown a little bit before. It's a weed. Yeah. You can't hardly kill it. Yeah. So paper, fiber, seed is a lot of protein. Cannabis oil. Yeah, we make really, hemp protein. Yeah, you know, that's part of our part of our business. Make hemp protein, and they won't let them grow it. <laughs> I mean, you talk about like that is that is Bond supervillain type of move. Really, where you just fuck all the consequences. I'm already incredibly rich, but I need to get more rich by eliminating the... I mean, it's so insane, that move. Well, I live in a gated community. My my wife likes it there because there's security. When she was in Brazil, she was in a very nice neighborhood, but they had she had an electrified uh, fence, barbed wire fence around her house, and the neighbors all paid a guard to patrol with a gun up and down the streets. So when we were looking at houses, we went to this gated community and it, she's felt very secure. The problem is it's full of retired Republican millionaires. <clears throat> so <laughs> so, so almost, you're secure from everything outside of the gate. Almost literally. <laughs> and so you drive by these, and these are old, I'm, I'm retired, I'm 72, but you have people, I'm like one of the younger people in this community. And there's people all the way up to 90. And, there's a, there are houses there that have ten and 12,000 square feet, yeah. two floors, three floors. And you go, what in the hell does an old 80-year-old retired couple with no children, what do they need a 10,000 square foot house for? 
Well, I'll tell you, Dave, because you got to show people that you're better than they are. That's right. Exactly. That's what you need that my, house for. My dick is bigger than your <laughs> dick, right? Look how monstrous <laughs> it is. Yeah. I had Stan Groff on the podcast recently, and he was talking about the old court Cold War joke where they were saying, yeah, those Russian missiles are looking pretty hard. We, we got to make sure that our missiles are even harder. <laughs> it, it's, it's a crazy attribute of you know human psyche when the ego is unchecked. I had a student come to my office years ago, and she said, you know why I think psychedelics are illegal? Because the government knows that people take them. They'll see all the games they're playing, and they'll see what the government's doing, and they'll hate capitalism and all that. And I'll say, I don't know if there's anybody in the government smart enough to know that. Yeah. But there's probably some truth to that. I mean, you know, my father was a really right-wing guy, and so all the hippies were using acid and smoking. He says, oh, those damn hippies, all these drugs are turning them against America. And so there was that perception among that crowd that the drugs made them turn into traitors. You know, they didn't want to fight the wars and stuff. And, and maybe they did. I don't know. That's a good thing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting when you play that, because I think so much of this is people trapped in their own ignorance. You know, like this idea of this evil mastermind that knows all of the truth and then is restricting it. I don't really buy that either. I think they're just locked in their own prisons of fear anyways, because I've watched people you know, approach any of these things, even a flotation tank, which holds up that mirror where you get a chance to look at yourself for once with at least some of your bias is gone, which of course, psychedelics are even typically even stronger. And that's a really <clears throat> scary thought. If you haven't done that for years, you're afraid of what you might see. And I think yeah. so often people just criminalize those things that they're afraid of. Oh, I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of that thing. So let's just make it take it off the game board entirely. You know, they've done a couple of imaging studies of brains of progressives versus conservatives. And what they find is the activity in the conservative brains is higher in the amygdala, which is the fear center. And in progressives, it's higher in the cortex and the anterior cingulate, where you do creative decision-making, etc. So the brains really work differently. And fear drives the amygdala. So all these Republicans, they're afraid of terrorists and they're afraid of being attacked and they're afraid of what's going to happen that activates their amygdala and it makes them susceptible to Republican propaganda. Mm -hmm. And now we're in a, a strange place where there's, you know, there is propaganda on both sides. You know, there's, we're in a weird polit where it's almost created this dichotomy where you have extremes, you know, instead of becoming central and making compromises and figuring out what makes sense, we're creating extremism. And I think, Ultimately, you know, that has to collapse back into a, at least a, a tighter, you know, a, a tighter central <clears throat> ground in order for there to really be some positive changes. I think a fundamental problem there is money in politics, because on the right, they've got the Koch brothers and all those people saying, you need to vote this way. And if you don't, I'm going to primary you and you're not going to get money. And so, I mean, what what normal person could go along with some, you know, destroy the EPA, destroy health and human services destroy, destroy the education system. Even Republicans shouldn't be that radical, but they've got the Koch brothers and DeVos's family and all saying, you better vote for this or we're going to get you. Yep. So even in the win at all costs, win at all costs. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I would hear people talk about radical left wing liberals and they would be describing me. And I, so <laughs> I don't consider myself a radical left wing liberal. I consider myself a logical, normal person, but the yeah. views I have by the mainstream Democratic Party are like, they're liberal. He's a liberal. We'll yeah. never have health care for all. We'll never have free college education. Why the hell not? You know, we have free missiles to shoot at Syria. You know, nobody talks about the cost of those. So I, I am a liberal. Yeah. Well, what, what I, and what I really believe is that this is all, the game is consciousness, you know, and, and the expansion of consciousness creates the ability for people to look with an unbiased lens and see what is for the greatest good. And, you know, while I really liked a lot of what Bernie was talking about, I think the idea that you're going to forcibly take money from the wealthy via taxes and take that and force it into the public domain is you know, less likely. I think anytime you're doing an aggressive act that feels like you're taking someone, people are going to get defensive. They're going to hide their money. They're going to move it. They're going to scuttle it. But you take those same people, you open up their hearts, you open up their mind, you give them access to consciousness. You show them that everyone is them living a different life. You give them a reason to want to give that. And then all of a sudden, all of these hidden pockets of resources and wealth 
they can actually channel that into positive good. And I think that's where I'm dedicating my effort is like, all right, yeah, I get the idea. We need wealth to spread to the right reasons, but we need people to want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and change the consciousness. But how do you, you know, how, yeah, you have to change the consciousness of the country because yeah. those people that have all the money, the right wing people, they really wouldn't want to live in the kind of country that they're working for. Because if people don't have enough money, they don't have health care, you've got sick, angry, hungry people. You don't want to live in that world, but they don't understand. You know, you don't need more money, but what you're creating is a, is a society with two tiers where you're going to be afraid to go outside your gated community because you don't know what's going to happen. They really want more <coughs> hugs. They really don't want more money. Like if they were really conscious, they want more hugs. They want people like Caitlin over here to come up and say, hey, thanks so much for contributing. You made such a difference and give them a warm yeah. hug. Like that's what they really want, but they just, they don't know that. So they keep building up bigger houses and more wealth and they don't really understand you know what they're truly desiring on a soul level well let's talk about science okay let's jump in go for it so of all individuals you are probably you know in one of the best positions to give a survey of the clinical research to date that's been done on psilocybin and psilocybin is a molecule that you're you know intimately involved with and and understand probably as well as anybody so you know let's let's talk about what has you know my audience is familiar with psilocybin probably in a variety of ways but if you had to summarize the key clinical findings um you know from the research that's been going on what are some of those you know landmark studies and what are some of the things that you're working on now so let me tell you why the hefter focused on psilocybin and hefter focusing on is why so many people know about psilocybin mm -hmm. so we wanted to do a study and we didn't have a lot of money and so we thought how can we get the most bang for our buck and so we looked at the old literature and the thing that seemed to be most successful was the treatment of cancer patients with LSD back at the Spring Grove Hospital and Groff was involved and Savage and Bill Richards and and so we said 60 to 70 percent of the people got some benefit, some degree of benefit from that. And that was an indication where the risk to benefit ratio seemed really favorable because they're dying, they're in pain, nothing's really helping them. So we could go in there and everybody would be compassionate. People are dying, they're afraid to die. Helping them seemed like a good thing. So we said, okay, this is what we're going to focus on. And Charlie Grobe was involved first and He'd been, dealing, he'd been dealing with Rick Doblin at MAPS about possibly using MDMA. <clears throat> but then Charlie Grubb said, you know, I don't want to use MDMA in dying people because their health is bad. And it, it may further stress them. And MDMA stresses their cardiovascular system. And I just don't want to do it. And so we said, okay. And he, so he backed out of that study. So we said, what would we use? Well, we looked at those old LSD studies. And we said, LSD seemed to work really well. But if we used LSD, there are certain problems. The major problem was we thought we might create a feeding frenzy by the media because you've seen sort of the media pick up, but we've never talked much about LSD. Oh, they're yeah. giving LSD to dying patients. And so we yep. thought the media would be honest, it would be unfavorable, and we really didn't want that. We wanted to stay under the radar screen. It also has that street <clears throat> name, Acid. Acid. <clears throat> you know, which it becomes a marketing and branding problem. And yeah. it's a problem for MDMA that fortunately MAPS has found their way through. Ecstasy. You know, like when people want to be sensational, they don't call it MDMA research. They call it, you know, they gave ecstasy to veterans. You know, but with psilocybin, fortunately... You know, I guess they can say magic mushrooms, but they tend not to. They tend to talk mm -hmm. about psilocybin because that's actually the <clears> compound <throat> that you isolated. Well, we had the we had the problem. We we feared we'd have a media feeding frenzy. And you know, in those late those studies in the '60s, there were patients who desperately needed some kind of a relief. And when they found out they were going to get LSD, they backed out. There were some patients that no, I, I've heard about that. It it makes you crazy. I don't want to take it. And also, LSD lasts eight to ten hours. So if you have a session with someone, they come in at 9 o'clock, you're going to be there all day. It's going to be a commitment by the therapist for a long period of time. So what else could we use? Well, DMT is too short-acting. We mm -hmm. didn't think that would really work. Um, and you'd have to make them smoke it or inject it. Um, mescaline, which is in peyote, that's safe. But the dose is high. And a lot of people, when they take mescaline or peyote, they get sick. They get nauseous. We thought, you don't want to make them sick and nauseous. And it also lasts 8 to 10 hours. Yep. Okay, well, psilocybin. Well, magic mushrooms, the Aztecs use it, Teonanacato, flesh of the mm -hmm. gods. People have used it worldwide, millions and millions of people, no adverse effects, no deaths. So this sounds good. 
let's use psilocybin. And when we started this work, if you went up to the guy on the street and said, well, we're using psilocybin, he'd go, what? And then I'd say, did you ever hear of magic mushrooms or shrooms? Oh, yeah, back when I was in college, people... Yeah, yeah. It was the active ingredient in psilocybin. Nobody knew what psilocybin was except a few. And now, of course, a lot of people do because, oh, yeah, psilocybin. So, and it's, it's short acting, four to six hours. So they come in at nine. The session is done late in the afternoon. They can go home with, you know, someone brought them. So, and it, but we didn't know if it would work. So we thought, okay, LSD worked, but we don't know if psilocybin will work. So then Charlie did the first study. It was Charlie Grobe at UCLA. And the dose was probably too low. And he didn't really have the ideal setting, but it worked. He got trends that were positive, and at six months, significantly positive reduction. So, thought, okay, this is going to work. And that was <clears throat> depression right off the gate? Yeah. Anxiety yeah. and depression in cancer patients. And yeah. they, were, they were severely ill. So then uh, Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins decided to sort of pick up the same thing and start doing it. And... Uh, so then we had that, and then New York University. So the psilocybin story got started that way. And it was really a choice to use that as opposed to other possible psychedelics, partly for political reasons, but also sort of logistics, the length of time and the possibility of making people feel bad with mescaline. And so that's kind of the psilocybin story, how it got started, the modern story. Yeah, and now, and now, as we've shown with a lot of this research, it may just be the perfect molecule to have chosen yeah, for we, a yeah. variety of reasons, because the preponderance of evidence that's coming out now is really overwhelming. It's almost a problem <clears throat> of, there's so many indications that this is showing benefit for, what do we choose next? Right. Yeah. Uh, we've got a, an OCD study that's just going to start, I think, uh, beginning of the summer. I want to do an eating disorder study because there is some anecdotal evidence uh, of people who have taken LSD and the eating disorder disappeared. And that, of course, is the most lethal psychiatric disorder. More people die percentage-wise of eating disorders. Uh, there's a woman at UNC Chapel Hill, um, Kathy Bulick, who's an expert in eating disorders. And I listened to an interview with her and she said, we don't even know how many young women this disorder kills because a lot of times after they die, the medical report will be they died of cardiac arrest. It won't say secondary to extreme wasting. Yeah, right. And so there's a condition that's very difficult to treat and highly fatal. A large percentage of, of patients just die. Nobody knows what to do. So imagine someone who's wasting away and basically going to die if you don't do something and you do the session and all of a sudden they're back. They, you know, get a different perspective. They don't see themselves as fat and obese and whatever's happened. And it's on the continuum of that compulsive you know, OCD eating disorders that they're all on a kind of continuum. From everything that I know about psilocybin and from both the clinical perspective, looking at the research, the mechanism of action that I'm excited to talk to you about so I get a deeper understanding of in personal use, I can't see how it would not have a significant impact in eating disorders. It seems oh. like an ideal candidate to oh, I test. Agree. It has to be done. And we just, we have to raise the money to do that. But there are people that want to do an eating disorder study. So I think we'll, well, that'll be one of the things we do. And that'll be coming up soon. The OCD study, there was a study published from a, from Scandinavian psychiatrist named Vandrup and Vanguard back in the 70s. And it was a 10-year follow-up of an individual that had severe obsessive compulsive disorder. And he had become completely incapacitated. They say if he heard a toilet flush, he'd have to go wash his hands a dozen times. He'd use four or five rolls of toilet paper a day. He was such a fear of contamination that he, he couldn't work. He was in his house. Maybe you just had a really messy butt. Well, I mean, people look at that. He needed some wet wipes in his life. Can someone give him a dude wipe sponsorship, please? <laughs> anyway, um, the psychiatrist gave him a dose of LSD every month for like 15 months. No therapy. He just had a psychiatric nurse that sat with him. And this report was a 10-year follow-up. And over the course of that, those periodic LSD doses, he became completely symptom-free. He got his job back. He became, he moved up in the company. People who had known him his whole life said his personality, he's so much better than he ever was. He's just a different person. And they reported this as a 10 year follow-up LSD with no psychotherapy. Yeah. So I, and I still, I have a copy of that. I, I still remember, boy, this is such an amazing thing. He even remembered they, they remarked in there that he had no training in psychology or Freudian terminology or anything. And he started talking about his early toilet training and things like that. Wow. And they said he even remembered when his symptoms started. He got off a bus late at night and stepped in a pile of dog dew. 
and that was when his symptoms started. So, so that, was, that traumatic event somehow that. triggered this whole thing. Interesting. So I think OCD will, will work. We did, we sponsored a study at University of Arizona. That was one of the first studies we did with Francisco Marino, but the study was poorly designed and, but there were, he had anecdotal evidence from people who ate magic mushrooms that they had lost their symptoms while the mushrooms had their effect. So he actually saw that, but we didn't, and didn't have long-term. And that study needs to be replicated. But I think OCD will work. Uh, I think eating disorders will probably work. Maybe not for 100%, but, you know, if you could do 80%. Yeah. So then, and we were talking earlier, there's a 180-person alcohol addiction study that's right. underway at, at NYU. York University, yeah. And um, early indications that there have been any pilot studies uh, done yeah. prior to that? Yeah. So Michael uh, Bogenschutz did a pilot study when he was still at the University of New Mexico. Uh, I think it was maybe 10 subjects, a pilot study, and showed a significant reduction in drink drinking days and heavy drinking days. So that was what allowed this expanded study. So the pilot study indicated that it did work in that small cohort. So now they're doing a larger study. So then we'll get really good numbers. Does, does it work? How many people does it work in and maybe improve the sort of diagnosis for who does it work for and how well. But yeah, that was uh, that was what allowed us to, that's a big investment to do a study like that. Yeah. I think we calculate for most of these studies, it's about $25,000 per participant. So imagine, you know, what 190 participants cost. Yep. And so we sort of pay as you go <laughs> on these things. But, um, you know, alcoholism is such a terrible disease sure and i think because it not only affects the person who has it it affects the people around your family them. your neighbors a random stranger you. as you're driving a car drunk you know and i think uh, at lunch they told you uh, michael had sent the grant in to one of the agencies to get money to pay for scanning brain scanning to do functional mri scanning before and after all these patients so we could see what's changed in the way the brain functions after they're treated and healed he sent this grant in and the study section gave him the highest possible ranking they were enthusiastic and said this work really needs to be done if this works we need to understand what's happening in the brain so he was so he got this score and he was talking to his project officer and he said so this is going to be funded and you know funding from nih is hard to get so if yeah. you get a top score you think you're going to get the money and she said well no it's actually not and he said what and she hey, why not well the division director isn't going to do this and so uh, we had a dialogue with him and said we'll send the division director an email and say you know this is we're looking for novel treatments for alcoholism you know this could be a tremendous health benefit for public health so I saw the email the division director sent back. He said, we will not under any circumstances ever approve the use of a hallucinogen to treat a condition. And it's a really scientific response. That he gave, <coughs> and you know, he, he said, non-emotional, no. unbiased, just looking at the data. And he added, if I had known that this was what it was about, <laughs> I would have told you don't even apply. And it wasn't to do the study. It was to do this before and after scanning. It was two years, $125,000. So it was like... Gee, my gosh. And the only reason you can under, understand why he might have done that is he was afraid that some congressman would see that, that this institute was funding a study that involved giving a psychedelic yeah. in a treatment program. And, but it, was just, it, was just, it just shows how recalcitrant and how backwards some of those people are in the top. And they're afraid of the politics. He obviously was afraid that somebody found out he'd lose his job or whatever. But I, I actually don't know what he was thinking, but you have to imagine it. Yeah. So certainly some kind of bias or internal yeah. bias or self-interest or part of some larger political, you know, mechanism. Right. I mean, there's no logic to what he said. No. And this, you know, with the uh, nicotine addiction study that Mike, uh, Matt Johnson did at Johns Hopkins, uh, he treated those 15 subjects and got 80% of them had quit smoking. And then I think he's done a follow-up and after time, it's down to 61%, I think, are still abstinent. But with Chantix, which is supposed to be the best therapy, Chantix with the program of therapy, the best you ever get is 35% of people stopping. So just twice as good. Twice as good. Twice as good. And that's the things that we're seeing across the board. We're not seeing like marginal improvements. No. We're seeing dramatic, yep. you know, paradigm shattering treatments that are coming out here. I mean, this is, so, you know, let's talk about the big ones that are there. There's, you know, we're preparing for phase three trials for major depression and the indication have been so far that there is a dramatic impact on patients with depression. Right, right. Um, 
Chuck Raison, who you met earlier, he's at the University of Wisconsin now. He was at one of the early meetings where they presented some of these data with dep in depression. And he sat in the audience, and he had done depression research, so he was aware of the significance of that. I hadn't done depression research, but I knew the numbers looked really good. And the, you know, it goes from 25, it drops down to 6 or something on this one scale. And he says, my God, that's amazing. There's nothing that works like that, which is true. Yep. There's nothing that works like that. If you were a drug company and you were trying to treat depression, you developed another Me Too SSRI, and that's what they do. It's incremental changes. They say, well, we've got this new one, and maybe it's tolerated better, or maybe it's a little faster onset or whatever. But uh, you never see numbers like that. You do a comparator, and they compare it to placebo. Give them nothing, and if it's better than nothing, okay, then we showed FC. They don't compare it to something that's already out there because it won't be any better. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is just amazing results. And uh, with the nicotine studies, uh, there's a fellow at NIDA that saw the, the numbers from Matt Johnson's study, this 80% reduction of smoking. He said the same thing. There's nothing that works like this. And actually, he volunteered to do brain, brain scanning studies on those subjects. So Matt's study is being expanded now, I think, to 40 participants. And he's going to do before and after brain scanning to find out what's happened in the functioning of the brain to make those people stop. What's, what's changed in the way their brains operate. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about study design and then we'll go into mechanism of action because one of the curious things for myself and for other people who've experienced psilocybin is, you know, how do you get a placebo? Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you do that? Cause that's there's, a, that's a perennial problem. Yeah. Um, well, in the alcoholism study, Mike Bogenschutz uses a large dose of Benadryl, which makes people feel kind of woozy, uh -huh. and, and it does more, at, and it's, it's a big dose. It's more than you would take for hay fever. Right. Um, the New York University study used niacin. Niacin makes your skin flush and tingly, yep. so you know you've been given something. Yeah. If you've never had a psychedelic, maybe you'd think, okay, this, is, this could be. Sure. But uh, if you've had a lot of niacin and a lot of psilocybin, I, mean, I can tell, God darn it, I got, got the niacin got the again. Niacin. My ass is on fire. My face is itchy. This is not what I was hoping for here. This is not going to give me one of my top five life experiences yeah. for sure. And, and Roland Griffiths is a master of designing placebos. Uh -huh. And in his 2006 study, he, he actually used a methylphenidate Ritalin. I believe at a high, a fairly high dose, but the guides, he had them all confused because there were like five different drugs that people could be given, including psilocybin. And so the guides couldn't even figure out a lot of time, like what did this person get? Um, Which is what you want. Yeah, exactly what you want. But in the depression, in the terminal, in the cancer patients, um, he used a low dose of psilocybin mm. that was basically inactive, presumably inactive. We don't know whether it was inactive, but it was a dose they couldn't, detect as was psychoactive so then he could tell all the subjects every session you're going to get a dose of psilocybin and so it was a way to kind of couch it but you know if they get the real the real mccoy you kind of know yeah in the study that's running now at university of alabama that peter hendricks is running in cocaine addicts uh i spoke to him after i think four subjects have been enrolled it's also double blind placebo controlled and he had i think four subjects and i said can you tell anything he said well I know it's placebo controlled and it's blinded, but he said there's uh, some amazing things. And he talked about one woman that was a hardcore uh, cocaine addict, I think a crack addict. And he said, you know, she got into, after the session, she, she her mood completely changed. She got into social services. She started getting uh, subsidized housing and was starting to put her life back together and said, told him, you saved my life. So, it probably wasn't placebo. Probably not. <laughs> but yeah. no, you're right. I mean, the the high dose where people have the, the mystical transcendental experience, it would be real hard to miss that. Yeah. Well, and I guess the challenge with the low dose of psilocybin is some of the indications from the microdosing, um, just very preliminary, it's a lot of it anecdotal at this point, is that may be a more active placebo than um than we're even realizing. Yeah. If you look at the paper he published on that, there are... There's the group that got the high dose first and the group that got the low dose first. And the low dose group does have some improvement in symptoms. You don't know whether it was the therapy. It could have just been the effect of the therapy because, you know, they, they do therapy for several hours before they get the drug. It could have been just the therapy, but there could be that there was some antidepressant effect in the low dose. So. Yeah, that makes sense. So 
cocaine was another study. What are the other studies that, I mean, and there's also some psycho-spiritual studies but um, that have shown some benefit with psilocybin, but what are the other kind of medically and focused studies that are out there? Is there any more that we kind of missed on the table here? Well, um, there's a study of cluster headache uh-huh. that's going on. And uh, that's a, a young new investigator, Emmanuel Schindler, is basically doing that study. We think that should work. There's evidence that psilocybin and LSD work to prevent and to abort and prevent cluster headaches. And that's like a migraine from hell? I mean, what is it's, a cluster headache? Yeah, it's the migraine from hell tenfold. Wow. I mean, people, there is no good way to abort that. People will take oxygen tanks and try to breathe it to try to make it stop. But it feels like somebody's driving a spike through your head. I mean, they're apparently really agonizing. Wow. And I don't know what the patient population size is, but if you can abort it and it doesn't happen, these people, I mean, this would be a tremendous advance for them. So that's ongoing. The obsessive compulsive disorder study is going to start. I think I talked to him, I think early June, May or June, that's going to start. It's there again, there are small pilot studies. Does it work in a small pilot study with using the same techniques? And then if it works, then of course, what we do is want to expand it. So I don't know what his enrollment is in the OCD study, but it's probably not more than a dozen or so. But then if it works, what you want to do is say, okay, let's power it up, do a larger study and see what the numbers really are and what the long term is. Mm-hmm. So OCD, um, cluster headache, cocaine addiction, and we should be getting an update on how far he is there. He's going to, the cocaine study would be 40. 40 cocaine addicts and again placebo controlled and i think there's an there may be an open label arm that if they get the placebo then they can come back and get the drug so a lot of these where you have the placebo versus active drug and the active drug works and a lot of them they'll have an an arm where they can get open label after the study's over Mm -hmm. and give them the real drug and so that you don't deprive them of therapy yeah any opioid uh any opioid studies with psilocybin or is that uh, relegated to ibogaine at this point. Um, I've heard rumblings of people that want to maybe look at uh, opioid addiction and psilocybin, uh-huh. but ibogaine is a different mechanism. We don't know how ibogaine actually works. It seems so, like it's a compound mechanism of action. Like there's multiple different yeah um, mechanisms. It's not. It's not a classic hallucinogen in terms of its mechanism of action. Nobody has really elucidated what it does. But of course, people that have been heroin addicts that have gone through it and they have no craving, they swear by it. So I watched it happen. I was down in Costa Rica and I saw someone come in hollow-eyed, you know, lost, disconnected from any kind of personal communication. And I watched him go through a harrowing like four-day, and he was there kind of the whole time I was, and uh, a four-day recovery process. We're out at the end of that you were looking at a totally new human being and he stayed on to volunteer and help. And, you know, I've heard that he's still completely clean on it. It's, it's remarkable when you see it happen that fast, you know, someone comes in one way and then really a true single dose. I think they maybe did two doses, but a harrowing four day hellish process. But at the end of it, you have lasting change. And the trick with addiction studies and people like that is, are they high? Can they, potentially be high functioning to begin with because if you get somebody off the street who's homeless and addicted he doesn't have the money to fly to a clinic anyway but if he had the money to go to the clinic and he no longer needs the drug then what does he go back to living under the bridge yeah so the the people that have been getting it so far have had the resources to be able to to follow up and you know rebuild their lives so that's a key part of it too yeah so let's talk mechanism of action i mean we've talked about all of these different indications and we haven't even gotten into the psycho spiritual indications but you know we'll i we'll have an opportunity to talk about that with some of the other guests that are coming on um but how does one molecule account for so many changes So that's a question I presented in a recent review that I wrote with my son, with Matt Johnson, published in Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics. So I said, okay, works in depression, works in anxiety, works in alcohol addiction, uh, maybe works in all these other things. The traditional notions of how drugs work, the traditional pharmacotherapy, I use the analogy, it's like you have an electronic circuit that's malfunctioning, and you don't understand what's wrong with it. So you take out a resistor and replace it. You take out this transistor, you replace it, and you keep replacing components until it starts working again. That's the conventional approach to treating things like depression and anxiety. 
you give an SSRI, well, let's raise the serotonin level in the synapse. Well, that didn't really work. Let's give a mixed one, an SNRI, that raises serotonin and norepinephrine levels. Well, that doesn't work. You try another one. It takes three or four weeks to start. So it's kind of empirically based. Somebody's got, got anxiety. Okay, is it long-term? Let's put them on lorazepam. Well, let's combine it with uh, something else. Let's combine it with that. So it's kind of a hit or miss, but it's all focused on receptor-based pharmacotherapy. And that doesn't work with a psychedelic because how does one receptor do all that? So that was the question that we presented. So that begs this question, how does it work? So we know from uh, Robin Card Harris's work at Imperial College that you see these changes in functional connectivity, resting state functional connectivity. So what happens is psychedelics activate serotonin 2A receptors. Mm-hmm. Now, and serotonin 2A receptors are on these cortical pyramidal cells, which are like the central processing units all throughout the cortex. So all your information comes in as an integrated in these cells, and then they send signals back and you know, that's your executive function, making decisions, whatever. So they're like the key elements in the cortex. So the serotonin 2A receptor, it depolarizes. So there's a membrane potential across neurons where you have a charge separation. So those receptors, when you activate them, that charge separation decreases. So the membrane potential rides toward a point where it would want to fire the neuron, but it doesn't fire. It just makes them more sensitive. It turns up the gain. Mm-hmm. So they're all turned on. Well, then there's another area in the brain called the claustrum, and this is what we proposed. So uh, Francis Crick, before he died, and uh, Chris, Christopher Kalk, who's a big consciousness guy at the Paul Allen Brain Institute, published a paper in 2005 said, the claustrum, the seat of consciousness, or something to that effect. Sure. The claustrum is this kind of enigmatic, enigmatic area that's in between the cortex and the insula. It's a little thin layer of cells. It turns out that the claustrum is highly connected. It's the most highly connected area in the whole brain. It connects to all the parts of the brain. It also turns out that the claustrum has the highest expression density of serotonin 2A receptors in the entire brain. And it also turns out that the cells in the claustrum don't just become sensitized and depolarized. They actually generate action potentials. And, they, and when they generate an action potential, they fire the neurons and they send glutamate to the whole brain, to all these places they're connected to. Now, the way that neurons fire, you know what an avalanche is, right? Mm-hmm. So neurons fire in the brain in what are called neuronal avalanches. So you have all these neurons connected together in like big chains of neurons. And one neuron fires a signal and maybe it activates two or three other neurons. And they may be activated or, or it may fade out. It depends on whether they're sensitive and how much of a signal they get. So you can have amplifying neuronal avalanches. So if all these neurons are sensitized, you pop one at the top and it fires, and it'll create this whole avalanche of neurons firing. So what we think, this is our best guess at this point. This is speculation. Our best guess is all these neurons are sensitized now by being activated through these serotonin 2A receptors. The colostrum actually fires and sends out glutamate projections and starts stimulating all these cells, and they just start firing like crazy. And so that creates this increase in connectivity. So the individual modules that were connected to each other before and talking to each other, that all breaks down because they're kind of overexcited, and they all start talking to each other. So you have this massive connectivity all throughout the brain. So what happens? (laughs) Then something happens, right? Um, that's the big, that's the big question. But what we think is when all that wears off, some changes have happened in neuroadaptation and, uh, long-term potentiation, whatever. But when that all wears off, the drug leaves the brain again, it sort of resets and goes back to the healthy connectivity state they had before. And they've done studies, this resting state functional connectivity is something they do now using a functional MRI. And they can actually look at whether two groups of uh, two areas in the brain talk to each other. It's a statistical correlation. You don't know which one is talking to which one, but you know that when this one lights up, this one lights up. So they've shown now for virtually every psychiatric disorder that resting state functional connectivity is dysfunctional. Mm. And in one study, at least, that I looked at, they had people who are depressed. So they did this resting state functional connectivity, looked at the way the brain was talking 
communicating. They gave him a standard SSRI. And then for the patients who were no longer depressed, they ran functional connectivity brain scanning studies again, and the patterns were healthy. So somehow what I think happens is you have these dysfunctional connectivity in the brain, and through this process of connectivity, excitability, whatever, uh, you change that so that when it all when the drug leaves the brain, it falls back into a more healthy functional connectivity pattern. That's the big question. That's what's really interesting yeah. because when somebody's healed by this, like, how did that happen? It, and, it, it almost <clears throat> brings me back to the conversation we were having at the start where if you think of the brain like different houses in a community, mm -hmm. right? And those houses are full of fear and full of trauma and whatever. They're going to have guard dogs and fences and alarms and they're not going to talk to anybody. And maybe there's that house, the colostrum of pretty conscious, <laughs> conscious individuals, right? The highest thinking individuals, but nobody's communicating with that. Those people, they're just isolating themselves, piping in there. They're the only the information that is fits with their own bias. And then, you know, you have something that universally opens up communication where everybody starts talking to each other and then passing information back and forth. And the whole community then starts to become more conscious through that, through that process. And in some ways it's like the brain, all of these elements in the process of communication, opening up those channels, um, seems to operate and function in a, in a more healthy way. Does that make sense in yeah, any, yeah, in we any don't, regard? We don't, not enough is known about this functional connectivity and efficient connectivity to really understand what's going on. But you do have these little identified segregated modules, like you say, like a house. And it, most of the communication is within the house. They're ta just talking within the house. It's intra-house. And then what happens is those barriers between these modules are broken down. And then they can start talking to their neighbors. And then they talk all across the brain. So mm -hmm. you kind of let the rabbit dog out of the house, so yeah. to speak. That's and, beautiful. Now, what I've heard before that psilocybin shunts blood towards the to the default mode network. Is that a kind of a false attribution of a mechanism of action? I mean, I think that was something that maybe even Amanda Fielding was saying. Or yeah, the the work at uh, the at Imperial College was looking at uh, decreased energy in the default net network and decreased blood flow. And there's some contradiction because the stuff that Franz Vollenweider had published years earlier, where he used PET imaging, had shown that there was activation of the prefrontal cortex. In the work that Carhart Harris did, they showed deactivation. And so there was kind of a, okay, what is it? Now, Franz has gone back and very carefully controlled for all kinds of artifacts, blood flow artifacts, etc. So it looks like the prefrontal cortex is activated, but the the uh, default mode network is this area that's active when you're not doing anything. And they actually discovered it that way. When people are just sitting and resting and not doing anything, maybe just daydreaming or whatever, they were looking at the energy use in the brain. And there was these areas that they called the default mode network that were using a lot of energy. And they said, what are they using all this energy for? Because nobody's doing anything. They're just sitting there kind of daydreaming. Vegging out. And that was, that's the default mode network. So when its energy goes down there, then it go then it expands. So you have expansion to or task positive networks and so forth. So there's a whole change in the way the brain is connected. Yeah, but again, it can also be looked at in this connectivity description. That yeah, and know. so then they follow that up with connectivity, and so uh, and that's what basically functional connectivity is. What everybody's starting to do now, they realize this is a powerful way to look at what happens in the brain, and then also uh, the same group at Imperial College uses magnetoencephalography to look at the actual currents, and they see the same thing: the changes in the way the brain connects. But that's like the big problem. That's the big question, the big research question, to understand what happens there. Car uh, Robin gave a talk. I was in Copenhagen. We gave a talk at the same symposium. And when he finished, he talked about the study where they treated the 12 severely depressed patients with uh, two doses of psilocybin, and the depression went away. And David Nutt may have talked about that here, too. Um, and somebody said, how does that work? And he was ready. He had a slide. He put up this slide that had a big shiny red button on it with white letters that said reset. He <laughs> says, I think you push it. And I used to tell people, they'd ask me how it works. I said, I think it's like rebooting the computer. Yeah. It gets sloggy. You hit control, alt, delete, and you know you get rid of all the stuff that's running in the background that's clogging the system up. It's That's a, kind of a crude analogy. And that understanding what that analogy, what that really represents and how those changes occur is going to be a huge breakthrough in terms of understanding brain function, disease, and everything, I think.
Yeah, totally. And so from someone who hasn't come from a scientific perspective, but has used psilocybin to make dramatic positive impacts on my own, because I think we all carry anxieties, depressions, addictions to certain levels, maybe not in a clinical pathological level that we need to get measured, but we all have this stuff that we carry around. And for myself, psilocybin has been one of those things that is immensely helped with these a variety of different conditions and continues to be an ally for me and for me what it feels like is that there's problems associated with the the ego self the self that is involved in identity and and the aubrey marcus self and then there's this other self which i can only call consciousness a self that has no identity seems to exist primarily in the present moment doesn't have these issues and psilocybin and some of these other plant medicines seem to activate and elevate or at, at perhaps even diminish the egoic self one way or another the the priority gets shifted to that element of consciousness that element of presence where you feel unified whole and and in a different state of being and then all of these problems generated by the self the storage of trauma the memory the identity of who you are all of these factors then start to disappear. It's like there's all these fires that you could try to put out as the self and uh, apply this pill here and try and stop that fire and apply this pill and, and chase all these fires. Or you can just you know, change your attention point, change your identity as self, and then all of the fires start to go out on their own in a, in kind of a magical way. And, and that's the experience that I've had. And it's cool because obviously we've known enough now that Nothing works in isolation. There's these, uh, the feelings that you can have, but then what's actually happening in the brain, everything is, is correlated. I mean, that's the beauty of this existence. You know, you have, um, the, you know, that kind of like the materialist reductionist approach of like, what is the nitty gritty that's happening? And then what does it feel like, you know, at the other side? And I think, you know, both of those coincide and perhaps, in the most conscious state, that thing that I'm talking about as consciousness, it is where the brain is communicating in a whole unified, you know, unicity where everything else feels segmented. I'm watching this part. I'm judging this part. I'm thinking about this part. You feel almost fragmented and then you expand and enhance communication through something like psilocybin. And it feels like consciousness. It feels like the, the, you know, the bliss of the now and, and that information is, it's a game changer. Well, what Robin Card Harris has said about the default mode network is its disintegration corresponds to the level of ego disintegration. And he said this default mode network may be kind of the ego. That's the part that structures, you know, sort of who you are. And when it collapses, when you destroy it and the connectivity, then it expands out. And so these other parts of the brain get involved that maybe are more enlightened or whatever yeah, you want to, yeah. and, and something like that. So you've, you've actually kind of destroyed the part of your brain that's keeps that ego intact. The structure disappears and then everything starts communicating. So literally their mind expanding is what, you know, people always said they produce mind expansion. You're, you're using more of your mind because you're getting connections between areas of the brain. Another thing they found that's related to that was with LSD, the visual cortex in the back of the brain expands out and starts contacting and communicating with areas that normally doesn't communicate with. Yeah. So that's, I mean, so what is the world, what does this world look like in, um, you know, what are the game changing implications of this? I mean, have you allowed yourself the, the fantasy to be able to look forward into the future where a psilocybin is an approved drug for depression and you have all of these backup studies showing efficacy in addictions and OCD and I mean what does that world look like to you is that something that drives you is that something that motivates your research yeah I mean it, it will revolutionize psychiatry psychiatry you may know is one of the most conservative areas of medicine and I taught medical students and occasionally uh, I would say you know, what, what specialties are going to go into? And, you know, a couple of people would say OBGYN, OBGYN, and some of us would say, well, you know, internal medicine, and some of us would say, I want to be cardiovascular. No hand. I says, how many people want to go into psychiatry? No hands. I think three years and I asked that, maybe one person said they want to go to psychiatry. The reason is psychiatry just doesn't have medicines. They don't, they don't have things that work. And uh, this would, this will revolutionize psychiatry. When I wrote that review article, the title was uh, Psychedelics as Medicines, an Emerging New Paradigm. Uh, 
I think it will revolutionize psychiatry. So once you understand what's happening to produce these long-term beneficial effects, you're going to understand more about the basis for those disorders to begin with. It, if depression relates to a certain type of dysfunctional connectivity, what are the areas of the brain that have contributed to that? Can we find them and find out, well, what drives them? What are the things that drive them? So I think for a long time in the future, for many, many years, we're going to be just looking at the details of how that actually works out. But if you eventually get it all worked out, you're also at the same time going to be learning a lot about consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. And the big question as a kid, I always, you know, I used to lay out on the grass, look at the sky, and I'd think... I, would, I didn't really have a happy childhood, let me say that. And I would look out the sky and I would think, you know, what are we doing here? Who am I? You know, I mean, I would actually think things like that. And that's a question, you know, generations ago, it was okay to be a philosopher. You didn't have to make a lot of money. But people quit asking that question. And, you know, if you take time to think about it, especially people who have used psychedelics, you sit down and a lot of times the discussion goes to like, oh, what are we doing here? What do you think right. we're here for? What's our purpose in life? And ordinary people that sit around and drink beer and they never talk like that. Yeah. But I think that's something that's a basic core question that a lot of people wonder about. What's our motivation? Why am, Why are we here? Is it, we Are we born and we do we die? And then people get into questions about, you know, is there spirit or is it, you know, is there not spirit or... And, are, you know, do you believe in God? All these things of questions that, that make us human and things and questions that everybody wonders about, I think we'll actually start talking about some of those things, you know, like what is consciousness? How is it structured? And you see it happening already. Yeah. You know, you yeah. see these conversations coming to the forefront. And I think the psychedelic, you know, this second psychedelic renaissance has been uh, a key part of that as well. And it's also, you know, this... What you guys are doing on the scientific front is absolutely essential to this whole process. It's the only way that we could take psychedelics out of this draconian dark age model mm -hmm. and bring light to what the actual benefits are because, you know, and I think as soon as the scientific method was allowed to work, the, the wheels were already in place to a foregone conclusion. And it's just about timing to get there because it is, it's too powerful a tool to deny when you allow the scientific process, you know, to, to take hold. And that's the beauty of where you guys have been focused. Just focus on that, focus on things that aren't, you know, that aren't disputable, that aren't subjective. You know, this is objective data that we now have. Okay. Here's the safety studies, you know, all of these things that you might've heard. Well, here's the actual results. Okay. It's beneficial. You've heard that. Okay. Here's some actual results. And, and that's, that's an undeniable process and it's just a matter of getting the attention and getting, you know, we're still going to run into resistance from individuals like that guy at the NIH that says, I absolutely yeah. won't work on psilocybin, but they're on the wrong side of the fence and on the wrong side of history. And, you know, I think people will start to see the trend and, you know, nobody ultimately, even the staunchest ego doesn't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so that'll start to turn. Well, look at just the excitement in, in the media and the general public about this issue. Why should people in general be interested in psychedelics? And yet you see they really are. And they see this as like, so there's a basic curiosity. And, you know, I think the medical model, people have questioned me like, I th why, why, you know, only doc, you think only doctors should be able to give these and so forth. And why can't people use them for spiritual growth and whatever? I say, you know, that's a whole nother debate. But I have focused on the medical model because I see that as the way we can get through, do the science, like you say, get the data. People said, well, what about Trump? Is he going to affect you? I said, the FDA is supposed to be impervious to politics. They work on data. We're presenting data. We're showing these things work. But I think it will change once public perception changes. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how long that will take. People asked me years ago, well, what do you see as the future? And I said, well, someday uh, in the future, probably long after I'm dead, you know, somebody will be having a midlife crisis and their doctor will send them down to see the psychiatrist slash shaman. And he'll give them a session with a psychedelic and he'll get a perspective on his life, where he's going, where he's been, and kind of get things back in focus. And they said, you think you'll be dead? That's really depressing. How can... I said, well, you have to start somewhere. <laughs> and 
uh, we're a lot farther than I thought we would be. And I hope in another 10 years, I'm still around to watch it because I think we're just seeing, you know, the bud is just starting to kind of open up and we're going to see this thing really start to bloom. The possibilities, I mean, for treatment and, you know, maybe it will come to spiritual stuff. I used to tell people a church that used psilocybin as a sacrament would become the fastest growing church in the world. <laughs> and no doubt. Anybody who would use it would say, yeah. Yeah. And, and then there's been, you know, studies to that effect on that psycho-spiritual side, too. And even weaving science into some of the work that's been done at Johns Hopkins. You know, they have these things to point to. Some of the most significant life experiences for people are when they receive oh, this yeah. psilocybin how, treatment. How can, take, how can taking psilocybin be as important as falling in love for the first time, you know? <laughs> but it is for yeah. some people. <laughs> Well, that vision of the future even, you know, I, it made me even a little emotional to think because it's a, a symbol of a world that has shifted dramatically where someone who's in pain and suffering has a real, you know, caring, positive option that can cause lasting change. And that's, it's so sad right now because, you know, you can see people in so much pain and so much suffering with so few options and so few good options. And then there's these things that are just right there, like, almost across the finish line, but we have all this momentum and residue from past ideas and misinformation and fears and the ego desperately clinging to the system as it was. Um, but we're headed that way. We just got to survive the perils, you know, the Scyllas and Charybdis of the, of the world and, and make it there because the allies are coming. You know, we have help for humanity on the way. So just fucking hold the ground. It's like the, the, the good forces, the hobbits and Gandalf and the elves in middle earth and the, and the horde is at the gates, but you know, Gandalf and the mushrooms are, are coming, you know, coming over the ridge and, and someday they'll be, you know, holding the staff and, uh, I mean, and think about people at the end of life, how terrifying that is for some people. We don't deal with death well at all. Yeah. And if you look at some of the videos posted on Hefter website of people that have been through this treatment that were dying, they became isolated, withdrawn. Uh, they didn't, you know, they pushed their friends away, basically just lost contact. They wanted to be left alone to die in a sense. And then after the treatment, it's all like sudden, like they got their life back. They wanted to see their family again and reconnected. And the life they had at the end was the quality improved so much and they weren't afraid to die yeah and to to be able to see that like i could i can do this now i'm not afraid anymore the fear is gone i mean it's just it's marvelous uh, for any of these depression or anything just to be able to take that away with a single treatment of a specific type of drug and they're illegal you know? <laughs> i know it's, and not only illegal but schedule one which yeah, makes it very, which makes very the illegal. most illegal Let's let's just not put it barely over yeah, the line of illegal. Let's, really illegal. let's push it all the way it's, to really illegal. illegal. That makes that makes a lot it's of sense. It's as illegal as it could get. <laughs> just just so we know we're we're dealing in an absurdity. You know, let's just make sure that we understand. It's that. A, a sort of absurd absurd conversation that I heard years ago from some friends who had taken magic mushrooms, and they were all sitting around talking about what is the universe and do we live after we die and everything, and someone said. You know, do you realize that we're all committing felonies here by eating these mushrooms? Right. And it was so absurd. And the punishment for that action oh. would be thrown in a cage where your humanity yeah, is shredded yeah. from you. Like, that makes a lot of sense. We'll look back at this time as we look at some of the atrocities of our past, as we look at slavery and we look at, you know, women's suffrage movement and all these things say, wow, we were really dumb then. Why you did know. it take so long to realize <laughs> yeah, exactly. how important these were, you know? Exactly. We'll look at that. Well, it's a beautiful world, and, you know, it's just so grateful that you've dedicated your life and your time to, to bringing these things to the forefront. It's something that will, in my opinion, have one of the most dramatic impacts on the, on the shape of humanity. So, um, from, my, from my heart, you know, thank you. It's, uh, <laughs> I get to leave something behind when I pass from this world. No doubt. No doubt. Thanks, everybody. And please, if you have resources and you have anything um, that you feel compelled to give, um, definitely check out what Hefter is doing. As I said, all this money is getting put to really good use. So um, I guess probably go to the website. Yeah, and we have people can do PayPal or they can contact us directly. I mean, yeah. money is the choke point. And basically, we're trying to identify young scientists. There's a lot of young guys out there. I get emails all the time. They want to know, how can I get involved in this yeah. work? And really money is the problem investigators at big universities will do these studies if they can get funded they can't get funded by the government yeah but their jobs in jeopardy if they don't have money for their research and so all these studies uh if there's funding 
we can get young investigators involved and then they'll become senior investigators and it'll be a snowball effect. So beautiful. Let's make it happen. Indeed. Thanks for coming on the yeah, show. My pleasure. Yeah. Enjoy absolutely. talking with you. Yeah, for sure. Bye everybody. There are many challenges facing our world right now and a lot of causes that need our support. But I truly believe that the one thing that can do the absolute most good is the legalization of psychedelic medicines. You've heard some of the amazing stories with these amazing guests. It has the potential to cure trauma, depression, anxiety, addiction, these plagues that our society is suffering from and will continue to suffer from unless we can bring a cure. The opportunity for us to fund these clinical trials and potentially legalize psychedelic medicine is right in our hands. It's not that much money. We just need a little bit of support. I set up a page at thecureisnear.com. Once again, that's thecureisnear.com. Absolutely anything helps. You can donate five bucks. You can just share it with somebody who has five bucks. You can split five bucks and each give 250. It doesn't matter. They need our support. It's not that much more money left and we might be able to have the tool that can start to cure the world. So please check it out out of curiosity, out of interest, out of love, out of compassion. For whatever reason, just check out the page, thecureisnear.com, and see if you can find it in your heart to help us out.